Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Okay, so today we're going to read Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to finish the section which would be considered the Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon on the Mount uh, spans Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and Matthew 7. Lyle did an awesome job of teaching Matthew 6 last week. Thank you for um, teaching in my place while I stayed home with my little girl who turned 15. I had a lot of weird milestones this week. My my little girl turned 15. I went to the eye doctor and was told that I need bifocals. (laughs) It was a heavy week for me. So thank you for your prayers. But we're going to finish the Sermon on the Mount today. Um, And as we continue going through the Sermon on the Mount, I probably should have said this when we started, um, but hey, any time's like the present. So let's just go ahead and uh, say it now. There are two main views um, when it comes to like really smart dudes that like talking about the Bible commentaries. There's two main views or two main camps that most folks fall into when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount. The first camp would be, this is a collection of Jesus' messages over his entire ministry. So the idea is, this isn't just like he stood up and just said, boom, 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 right? The idea would be, is that all of the amazing little nuggets that he gave, this is a collection of them. And he may or may not have stood and said them all together, but like any great teacher, you don't just say something truthful once. You gotta say it numerous times for it to stick. So Jesus taught for three years, and, and we're told in John that this is not, like we couldn't even record all the things that he said and he did. So we know that this is just some of the things, and we know that some of the things that he said, he said over and over and over again. So is it pos- it's possible that there was a collection of stuff that were kind of like his go-tos, right? He said these things a lot. It's almost like reading through Proverbs. This is a good truth and this is a good truth. Man, that's really good too. But they don't necessarily connect. They're just all really good stuff. The other camp is that this was actually a sermon that he stood up on a mountain and taught. Now I bring this up because these two differences matter. They matter in the sense that if you look at this as a collection of things that he taught over the entirety of his ministry, then each little um, uh, section, like where he talks uh, about oaths or retaliation or the Lord's Prayer. Each one of these little bitty things, they're kind of like a nuggets of truth that stand on their own, kind of like I said just a minute ago in Proverbs. But if you read them like it was one main sermon, he's not scatterbrained. Each one of these things connect to each other in some specific way. Now, I am of the opinion that since Matthew wrote it like it was one sermon that he stood up and taught, then we should read it like uh, it is one sermon that he stood up and taught. So that is the approach we're gonna take for Matthew, and the reason why I bring that up is because as we get into Matthew 7 today, it, is, it, it can seem very scattered without some kind of connecting thread. 
All right, so the, uh, Matthew chapter five makes sense. These, these beatitudes, they kind of make sense. Okay, and then there's this concept of like, he's, he's building and he's giving context and he's kind of giving, okay, well, what does it look like for that? Well, in this area, like when it comes to anger, that's how this kind of looks. Okay, I see that. But then we just start getting into six, it seems like there's kind of more independent thoughts. And by the time we get to seven, man, if there's not some connection, connecting thread, he's all over the place. Well, I'm convinced that there is a connecting thread, and as we read Matthew 7, I want us to read it with that thread in mind, and I believe that that connecting thread for Matthew chapter 7 is relationships. I think that Matthew 5 and 6 are Jesus saying, look, people who follow me, this is what their lives look like. People who surrender to me, this is what their lives look like. And it looks like this specifically when it comes to anger. And it looks specifically like this when it comes to oaths. And he's con- continuing that thought as we get into seven. And what he's essentially saying is, people who follow me, it looks like this in relationships. Do you follow? So essentially what he's saying is, in relationships with each other, other believers, in relationships with non-believers, in relationships with me as your God, the connection between all those different areas is affected by the fact that you are a follower of Jesus. And that's really important because what it means is all of the relationships in your life are not just relationships that you just happen to have. This is not just like my friend. That's what what it was before you met Jesus. But now that you are being transformed by the kingdom of God and Jesus is your highest treasure, then every relationship in your life flows out of that reality that Jesus is king. Does that make sense? And that changes the dynamic of the relationship for the better. Now it's not just like we're friends because we had a class together or because our our, our offices are close and our desks are close or we happen to take lunch at the same time or our kids are around the same age. Those aren't like the parameters for building friendships. Now the parameter for building friendships are eternal mindset. This idea that eternity is in mind and I have been redeemed and there is also a person who has been redeemed or has not yet been redeemed. And my relationship, God is going to use me in that relationship to show them the glory of what eternal things look like. Does that make sense? So he's saying that because you are a follower of me, all of your relationships look differently. And that's essentially the thread that we're gonna read as we go through Matthew chapter seven. So with that in mind, let's pick up Matthew chapter seven. We're gonna read verse uh, one through six. Matthew seven, one says, judge not that you not may, blah, 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 blah. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, "Uh, let me take that speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And while you're at it, do not give dogs what is holy. and Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. 
See what I mean about seeing like things are scattered? Okay, I had, I think I almost had the log thing and then we're talking about pigs and dogs and you lost me. Jesus is teaching um, from like a heaven's perspective and we're listening from like a Sunday, like a Saturday morning cartoon perspective. That's why there's not a, like we can't follow him because he's just talking way over our heads. But it's not enough for us to just sit and say, well, that's how Jesus talks. He's just always talking over our heads. The invitation is to mature a little bit. Grow up so that you're not being spoken over anymore. Grow up so that everything that he speaks, it comes clearly to your heart. So the invitation here is in relation to folks who are other believers, and then the ends, how we should have relationships with folks who are not. Now we'll get into that in a second, but I just wanna preface the beginning of this with how, um, how much the world loves Matthew chapter seven, verse one, right? You've probably been like people who don't want anything to do with God have probably quoted this verse to you. And the world loves this verse. And the reason why is because the assumption from this verse, judge not that you be not judged. What are we, judging me? Your own savior told you not to do that. So I don't know what you think you're doing. The assumption being that Christians aren't allowed to judge anything. We can't judge. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying Christians have to check their critical thinking skills at the door. He's not saying to wander through life and refuse to make any critical judgments about things that are wise or unwise. In fact, he goes on in the rest of chapter seven to actually tell us to make judgments about things like dogs and pigs and gates and teachings and people's fruit. So the assumption from the world when they hear that is that, oh, well, you're not allowed to judge. But the truth is that Christians are actually commanded to judge lots of things. We're commanded to inspect the fruit of a lot of things and make judgments on what we see. So how is it that we're not supposed to judge, but also supposed to judge? How does that work? Well, in the New Testament, there's tons of things that are both. They're not one or the other. And they're both because they both live in harmony next to each other from heaven's perspective, but from earth's perspective because of sin, they don't seem like they could. So for us to wrestle with how are we supposed to not judge but also judge, the best way to dissect this is to look at the way the word judge is defined or look at the definition of it in the Greek. The word judge in Greek literally means to make a selection, to criticize, to find fault, or to condemn. So when Jesus says that Christians are not to judge, he's saying Christians should not be hypercritical, fault-finding, or condemning as a posture in our lives. And I think all of us can say, I can agree with that. The idea being is that all of us answer ultimately to Jesus. This is why Paul says in Romans 14, don't pass judgment on another man's servant. When he's talking about issues of personal, uh, of each person's individual um, 
Um, conviction, like I, I just don't feel strong, I, I feel strongly about this or I don't feel strongly about this. Okay, well, you may not feel strongly about this or not feel strongly about this, but whether you do or you don't, don't be hypercritical of somebody who does feel strongly about this thing. Does that make sense? So don't violate somebody's conviction just because you div- have a different conviction. Because uh, personally, I don't have a strong conviction about whether you do or do not drink alcohol. Now there are entire segments of the church who say like, if you do that, you're going to hell. And there are entire segments of the Christianity that's like, look, I don't know what to tell you, like the one way that Jesus told us to remember him was to drink alcohol. So what am I supposed to do? I'm gonna drink alcohol. There is a very clear outline in the New Testament, like look, the line is being a drunk. That's where you cross into sin. When that rules and runs your life, when you get to the place where you have completely lost your ability to think critically because something you put in your body changed the way that you um, process thought, man, that's a line, you've crossed that. But when it comes to just like putting something in your body, it's not the thing you put inside your body that defiles you. That is a conviction that as a whole, Christianity holds. I, I I don't care if you drink alcohol or not. But there is a conviction that I have personally where I don't drink it at all. And the reason why I don't drink it all at all is because one, I come from a long line of men in my family who don't know when to say no when it comes to drinking. Now, thank God my dad broke that cycle, but before him, there was a long line of dudes who said like, I'm just gonna handle my stuff by drinking so I don't have to think about it. But the other side of it is I'm aware that in America, um, we've got a lot of folks who come on Sunday morning and that's a thing that ruled their life for a long time. And I want to give you the freedom to be able to see somebody who stands up and says, man, I don't do it and you don't have to do it either. You can be okay. You can live a full life and not do it. I'm doing it. Follow me. But just because that's a conviction I have doesn't mean I'm going to push that conviction on you. But what Jesus is saying when it comes to not judging, what he's saying is don't be the kind of people who walk around hypercritical thinking that your personal conviction is the conviction from on high that everybody else should be living their standard at. That's what it means that you shouldn't be judging. You should give the freedom for your brothers and sisters to live the life that Christ has called them to because they answer unto him, they don't answer to you. Don't be hypercritical or judgmental of somebody else's servant because they're serving him and not you. You follow? So if our posture toward each other isn't critical, what is our posture? If we're not supposed to be critical and fault-finding and trying to see, hey, I think you're a little too far out, and come back over here, come on. If that's not our posture, what is our posture? Our posture is, the, the answer to that question is found in the principle or the teaching or the parable of the log and the speck. Don't be hypercritical, be generous. Don't be judgmental, be helpful. Don't be fault-finding, be gracious. And the invitation is, be generous, be gracious, be helpful by regularly removing the log from your own eye. How can you be the most helpful to other believers? 
Constantly dissect your own heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let him guide you through those dark areas of your heart you don't like, you don't like even admitting exist, and let the Holy Spirit remove the logs from your own eye. Because it's only then will you able to be, uh, will you, will be able to see clearly to uh, help other people, your other brothers, remove the specks from their eye. And that's interesting because the assumption will be like, okay, well then everyone just kind of take care of their own thing uh, and, and like don't be removing sawdust from other people. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus is clear. We should be helping each other remove the stuff from our eyes, but you should only do that when you've done the work of removing the tree branch from your own eye. You follow? So don't be critical, be helpful, but the best way you can be helpful is to know the stuff in your own life that doesn't belong there and get rid of it. You follow? Sorry, I hit the microphone. So then Jesus takes this, this uh, kind of this pivot here, right? And he throws in this concept of like dogs and pigs. And it seems out of place. But if you look at it in context of the other stuff that he teaches later, Dogs and pigs are always symbolic of Gentiles or outsiders or unclean people. But not just your general run-to-the-mill people who, who, who are lost, the unsaved, because what that would mean is he's telling you just completely avoid non-believers. And that's not what he says. Right, the idea um, that he spent most of his time with sinners, the great commission that we get at the end of this book, is essentially saying your entire life should be about going to non-believers. So if we know that his argument is not avoid non-believers, but he is telling us to don't spend time casting our treasures to dogs and pigs, what is he saying? Well, I believe what he's saying is that if a non-believer acts more like a dog or a pig than a man, if they regularly mock you for your faith and have clearly numerous times rejected Jesus and told you, I don't want anything that you're selling, leave me alone, and they mock you for it, then Jesus says, don't waste your time casting the things that you treasure before people who will not also treasure them. There are folks in this world who go far beyond just the, I don't share your opinions about God and Jesus. There are folks who go a country mile past that and will mock you and belittle you and persecute you and stick it to you. And when you, when you try to present the gospel, when you try to live, man, all they do is just respond in more of a mocking tone. Jesus says for folks like that, do not waste your time casting the treasures of the kingdom of God before them because they've already told you numerous times they don't want any part of it. Now this is weird because it seems like, well, I don't know if I agree with that. Well, you can agree with it, you don't agree with it. Ultimately, you're not agreeing or disagreeing with me, you're disagreeing or disagreeing with Jesus. Well, I don't know if that's what dogs or pigs mean. Okay. But the reality of it is there's a spiritual principle there. There are things that you treasure in this world because you follow Jesus that are infinitely greater than anything in this world. 
And you can take those things that you treasure and cast them before people who don't care and then get frustrated that, man, it just doesn't seem like anyone really cares. Or you can follow what Jesus says and say, man, find the folks who treasure the stuff that you treasure and cast your pearls before them and treasure them together. But don't expect somebody who has no, no perspective for heavenly things to, to value that experience you had or that thing that God shared you in the word or that thing he told you in prayer or that thing he shared with you in a dream last night. How about, how about you just treasure it in your heart or share it with those two people who you know will value it the same way you value it? Stop trying to make the world love the stuff that you love when they haven't been changed in the way that you've been changed. You follow? All right, let's pick it up in verse seven. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who, rece- who asks, receives. That, that's important. Everybody who asks, receives. Do they always receive what they ask for? Nope, but they're gonna receive something. That's important, that's important. Because unless you understand that principle, it looks like Jesus is giving us a blank check. And a lot of churches are built off of that. A lot of bad theology is built off of that, but that's not what he's saying. He's saying everybody who asks receives. Do I all receive what I ask for? No, but you're promised you will receive what he says are good things. Let's continue. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. Does he always find what he's seeking for? No, most of the times he finds things that are better than what he was seeking for. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? I thought that would be such a great, just practical joke to play on my kids, but none of them have ever asked for fish, so I'm still waiting. I've got a serpent in, no. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your, will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? We're boneheads. But we know how to give good gifts to our kids. How much more does our heavenly Father understand the principle of what it means to give good gifts? And your kids ask for some of the dumbest things. But do you always give them what they ask for? No, in your wisdom, you give them something infinitely even greater than that. The principle is the same. God is saying, hey, you, got, you know how you parent? Like, I'm like that, but even better. Like, I'm not some stone God that you gotta pray to and make sure that you make these sacrifices to and make sure that you do all the right things and not do the things you're not supposed to. No, I'm like a father. I know what you need, and I know you think you know what you need, but I know what you need even more. And so here's a promise I'll make to you. If you seek, you're always gonna find. You may not find what you wanted to find, but I promise you're gonna find something that I would define as a good gift, and it's gonna be infinitely better than what you thought you wanted to find in the first place. And that comes for asking and knocking too. 
So here's the beauty of this verse. This is not a blank check for us to get whatever we want. This is a promise that every time we pursue him, he will always respond with some form of a reward. The the children of God will always be rewarded for their seeking and their, their asking and their knocking. God loves responding to his children when they ask and they seek and they knock. But the thing is, is that what he responds with is his definition of good and not yours, which means that, and this is the beauty of it, it means that when you pray, most of your prayers, even on a good day, are selfish prayers. But it means he's not going to ignore those. Your dad doesn't ignore weak and immature and selfish prayers. The fact that you sought and you asked and you knocked, even though you were asking and seeking and knocking for the wrong thing and you thought it was the right thing in your own heart, the pursuit, according to Jesus, will be rewarded with the thing that you needed in the first place. And that's the beauty of it. Because as you grow and as you mature, your your desires will change. As you pursue Jesus, spiritually, he starts replacing the selfishness with godliness. He starts replacing all that garbage with righteousness, Christ's righteousness. And as you grow and change, you grow and you change, and your desires change, and your prayers change, right? You eventually, after you start walking with the Lord, hopefully, you start walking with the Lord, your desires start changing, and you start praying prayers that sound more like Jesus praying prayers than your old self praying prayers. And the the evidence is, think about your prayer life 10 years ago. We're not asking for the same things that we were asking for 10 years ago. So you are growing and you are maturing. But just because your desires will change and God loves answering prayers that Jesus would pray, and so your desires change and you're praying, you're like, oh, this is, more, this is, this is what Jesus, this is not even what I want, this is what Jesus wants, and so I'm praying this, and God's like, yeah, I love giving you that stuff because that's what I wanted anyway. We're on the same page. You're not uh, stuck or at a loss until you arrive at that place because you're still over here praying selfish, immature prayers and you don't even realize how immature and selfish you are. The beauty of is in the middle of praying that, he shows you, ah, listen to yourself. And you're like, yeah, that was a dumb prayer. But I wouldn't have realized how dumb it was until I said it out loud and then the glory of the God gave me something that I wasn't asking for to show me how infinitely better it it was to get an answer to my prayer that you wanted me to have and not just what I wanted to have. This is what he's saying. He's the good father in heaven and he knows how to respond to his children and give them the good stuff that they need, not just the stuff that they want but you're not doomed in the meantime while you're growing. You don't have to wait to start seeking and asking and knocking until you've hit some level of maturity. No, start today and he'll mature you while you pray those those lousy prayers. Amen? All right, let's continue. Verse 12. All right, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. 
for those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. I'll pause there. We were just talking about God maturing you, right? We're just talking about God changing your desires. Your prayer life sounds different. Well, in the process of changing you, your heart and your desires transform. And the stuff that you want for yourself is not the stuff that you wanted for yourself 10 years ago. We, we just covered that. But this idea of, of not wanting the same things that you want 10 years ago means that the stuff you want for yourself is different and it reflects a more godly perspective. So when, in, when dissecting how I'm supposed to relate to other people, the beauty of God changing your desires doesn't just stop with you. Okay, now you're a changed person, praise God. But now that, the ch now that your heart is different and you've been changed, now how you relate to other people changes too. So now you, didn't just, you don't just want the same selfish stuff you wanted 10 years ago, you want godly stuff, which means that in your relationship with other people, you want that godly stuff for them and you want them to treat you in that way as well. Do you see how all this works? How should we start relating to other people? We should relate to other people based off of how we seek God treating us and the new desires he gives us in our heart, which means that I, I, don't, I don't want just my own self to be satisfied anymore. I want God to be glorified. And because I want God to be glorified, I'm gonna treat other people differently. And if I'm gonna treat other people differently, how I treat them is how I wanna be treated as well. And so the cycle of the relationships that I have with other people is informed by my relationship with God. It's not informed anymore by what I want or what I think or how somebody else told me I'm supposed to think. Everything, my connection with others is, is informed by my relationship with God. You following? Why is this important? Why is it important to understand that in, in our relationship with other people, we should be informed by God? Because in your relationship with other people, in your treating other folks and being close to other folks, there is going to be an ongoing temptation in your life to want to do things the way that other people do them because everybody does it. So this idea of, okay, I'm being changed and because I'm changed and transformed now that I'm following Jesus, the way I relate to others is changing. I want to treat them differently and I want them to treat me differently. But while I'm out here in all the treating and the rubbing shoulders with other people, what I'm constantly coming across are these other ways to do stuff. I've got God telling me you need to do it this way, but man, when I go and hang out with these people, they don't really seem to care about God's precepts or the way things work and, and their life seems to be okay. It seems to not really be a big deal. They compromise on these issues and it doesn't seem like that big of a deal and the sway, the tug on your heart is, man, it's not, you're so firm on this thing, but like, but these people, man, look how much fun they're having. And the temptation is compromise on this so that you can experience that. So Jesus says, look, in all of your relating with other people, what you're going to find out in the world is that most people are going through two gates. Not most, all. All people are going through two gates. There's two gates in the world. One is the wide gate, and the second is the narrow gate. So essentially what he's doing is he's giving a little parable to help us understand how to process the temptation of dealing with other folks while we're out in the world doing our daily life. You've got a way to live. It's from on high. Jesus told us how we're supposed to do this. 
But when you go out there and you're meeting these other people, you're gonna see offers to do it this way. And have you thought about this? And why don't you try it this way? And you're watching a YouTube video and somebody's like, you know, here's a different way to think about some things. And the invitation is, hey, I know you're, you're a narrow-minded Christian. You don't believe anything unless it's in this book. Have you considered this? Have you thought about this? Have you considered this? And what's happening in your relation with other people is there is an invitation ongoing to make the gate as wide as possible so that more and more people can pass through it. That's how Jesus tells us to view life. And what's being sold by the world and what's being hooked in our heart and what's being um, invited our way is this idea that the wide gate is something that tons of people are doing and tons of people are traveling through. It can't be that bad if everybody's doing it. Everybody's going through this gate. It's, it's, it's got a large entrance, it's easy to locate, you don't have to search. As a matter of fact, YouTube will serve up videos to you about this way of doing life. You don't have to search for it, it'll find you. And the gate is so wide that there are no limits on baggage. You can bring all the baggage you want going through this gate. There are no requirements, there are no demands, there is no forsaking, there is no putting stuff aside, there is no saying, I can't have this. No, you can have all of it because the gate is as wide as it possibly can. But Jesus says you need to understand that that gate, it leads to one place, destruction. Yeah, it's wide and lots of people are going through it and it looks great and it's beautiful, but it's heading towards destruction. What you want is not the wide gate. What you want is not the thing that everybody's doing. What you want is not the thing that most people are selling and telling you are the best things for you. What you want is the narrow gate. And in the narrow gate, there's few people who even find it. It's easily overlooked. It's really narrow. It's so narrow, you can't bring your baggage with you. You can't hold the stuff in your hand that you want. You have to leave everything behind. To even get through it, you've gotta, you've gotta leave all of your garbage behind. You gotta take off the old man, the old garbage, all of the old baggage. You gotta barely, barely squeeze through this narrow gate. But if you do, and if that's the path you choose, you're promised that it's headed one direction to eternal life. So the question set before you is in your relation with other people when you're constantly tempted. And this happens more when you're young than when you're old. It does certainly happen as you're old. But in, uh, when you're young, there's this constant temptation. Man, you got a whole life ahead of you. Don't make strong commitments now. Don't make promises now. You can make promises later. You can make convictions and have strong opinions about things later. Go out and make your choices. Find the world. Date a bunch of different people so you can see what kind of people. No, no, don't do that. That is bad advice. Don't walk through the wide gate. Don't do what everybody else is doing because it's heading towards destruction. What you want is the narrow gate. What you want is to fit your life through this tiny little gate. That's what you want because this is what leads to eternal life. So as you're living and relating to other people, don't buy into the argument that everybody's doing it. I don't want to be left out. Now, what's interesting is that when we're talking about gates and we're talking about the world letting us know about all of these wide gates, Jesus kind of pivots and he starts talking about false prophets. 
And I told you, unless there's some connecting thread, which is relationships, this stuff doesn't make sense. But it, it makes perfect sense when I'm reading through this and I'm seeing, okay, all right, I'm, I'm supposed to live this way when it comes to other believers. I'm, when it comes to God, I'm supposed to be praying and asking and believing. When it comes to non-believers, I need to be careful about what gate I'm going through because there's, like, everybody's gonna be going through the wrong gate and it's, gonna, and it's gonna seem like the right thing to do just because a lot of people are doing it. I should probably post this online because, because everybody's doing this. I should probably go this way and talk this way just because everybody's doing it. Jesus then pivots and he says, also, here is, it gets even worse, all right? It's not just the world living a certain way and, and hundreds of thousands of people going through a wide gate. At the entrance of the wide gate are false prophets preaching the good news about this wide gate. So when you're out relating to people and you're seeing the, the invitation to compromise on your character and your beliefs to follow people through the wide gate, it's not gonna end there because in addition to just seeing other people living that way, you're gonna have preachers that look like me, probably better dressed, standing up there with a megaphone shouting and preaching the virtues of going through this wide gate. It's beautiful, look, you don't have to forsake anything. Bring all your mess, bring all your family, bring your kids, bring your wife, everybody's welcome. Come on, there's room for everyone. There are false prophets standing at the gate preaching the virtues of it, and if you're not careful that when you hear a preacher talking about a gate, if you don't know what a preacher should be saying and what gate should be looking like, just the fact that it is a preacher and a gate makes you think, well, this should be right. I guess this is where everyone's going, so this is where we're going. And then pretty soon you end up in a church that you've been at for five years and you've never really listened to what the pastor talks about and you've never really paid any attention to what the virtues of the character of the church is about. And, you, and one day you just kind of wake up and you're like, is this, wait, is this even a church? I can't remember the last time the pastor said the word sin or talked about a coming judgment. All we ever really talk about is, is, is how there's some principles in this Pixar movie that might possibly relate to my life. We read the Bible, but it's usually only a verse at a time. And man, 20 minutes, we're in and out. Because they gotta clear that parking lot for the next service because, man, there, it, is, it is a wide gate and they're shuffling a lot of people through it. Look, I'm not trying to be too hypercritical on church, but Jesus is being clear that if you're not careful, it is easy to follow the sound of a false prophet because what he's talking about seems to make sense. It seems like it would be good for us to say the right things to draw the most crowd so the most amount of people can hear the good news of Jesus. But man, when you look at his life, Jesus' life, he was the kind of dude who on the regular said stuff just to drive the crowds away. His disciples were constantly like, Jesus, look, we got a couple notes from last sermon. You gotta stop saying this. You gotta stop talking about your flesh and your blood and eating it, like it's really, it's sending half the crowds away. Do you want people to hear your message or do you not want people to hear your message? Because if you want the crowds to grow, you gotta be a little softer with the way you talk to these people. And Jesus is like, you don't get it. 
And unfortunately, I think that most of us don't get it. So Jesus gives us a warning. Verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. What is a sheep? A, a, a sheep is, that's someone in the kingdom of God. He's the great shepherd, so the sheep are other believers. So false prophets come in sheep's clothing. They look like us. They look like other believers. But inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. All they want to do is devour and build their own kingdom and pad their own wallets and buy their own planes. That's all they want, to take advantage of you, to eat the sheep. That's what these dudes want. How do you recognize these dudes? Because I don't want to be eaten. So how do I recognize them? You will recognize them by their fruits. Are, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. That's really interesting. Because I would venture to guess, I, I would just assume that like a healthy tree bears good fruit, right? And an unhealthy tree doesn't bear fruit. That's what I would assume. I don't know if you make that assumption, but if I'm not following the logic here and I'm just kind of assuming things, good trees bear good fruit. All I gotta do is look for the fruit because bad trees aren't gonna produce fruit, but that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says that, that diseased trees bear bad fruit, which is troublesome because it means that both trees are producing fruit, which means from a distance, both trees look like they have fruit on them and you can't tell the difference until you get close enough to examine the fruit. And most of us don't know enough of scripture or, or how to understand scripture to be able to look at the fruit and dissect whether this is actually good fruit or bad fruit. Because we're, we live our lives in this posture where like I'm far enough away, it looks pretty good, it looks pretty good, this all looks pretty good. That's wide gate, that's wide gate theology, that this all looks pretty good. It's not all good. A lot of it is wicked bad fruit that you do not want in your diet. Verse 18, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. For every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Who do we recognize by their fruits? We recognize people who are out there preaching about the wide gate people who love letting you hold on to your baggage. You need to check some more bags? Sure, bring as many as you want, no extra charge. These false prophets love not demanding anything. How can you tell who these folks are? How can you tell whether their fruit is good or bad? How can you avoid being led astray? You have to look at the fruit you have to examine it and know the difference between good and bad fruit. Good fruit looks like the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. And bad fruit looks like the desires of the flesh. So how am I supposed to tell the difference between a false prophet and a real prophet? How am I supposed to tell the difference between whether they're actually preaching the gospel or if they're preaching some false gospel? Well, I do a couple things. One, I listen to what they're saying and I weigh what they're saying against what the Word of God says. And if it's not in balance, I stop listening to it. 
but I don't just listen to what they're saying because men and women have a way of deceiving you by only talking and never doing. So I'm not just listening to what they say, I'm also looking at the way they live. I'm watching their conduct. I'm watching their character. I'm not just examining what they say while they're standing here behind the Bible. I'm watching what they say and how they say it and when they say it when they're not standing behind this Bible. I'm examining their character and their conduct because I wanna know if the fruit that they're talking about stops when the service is over or continues in their home because we're told in Paul that you're not qualified to stand up here and do this unless this is working itself out in your home. The training ground for qualification for doing what I'm doing right now doesn't start right here. It doesn't start in pastoral ministry. It starts in my home with my wife and my children. So, why is this important? Why am I hitting this so hard? Why is Jesus bringing this up? Why are we so concerned with wide gates and narrow gates and false prophets? Because of what we're told in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You mean to tell me not everybody who says Lord, Lord is getting in? That word Lord is the, it, it, I mean, it is, it is the Greek tense of saying like, like describing like you were the head over my life, Lord, Lord, Lord. You had authority over me. You were in charge. You tell me that not everybody who says that is getting in? No, because on that day, many are gonna say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? Do we not do many mighty religious works in your name? And then I'm gonna to declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. Why is this important? Because if you're not paying attention to the width of the gates, and if you're not examining the fruit of the prophet, you run the risk of following the wrong Jesus down the wrong road. And what's interesting here is that none of these guys stood here and said, Lord, Lord, we spent our life treasuring you over this world. We spent our life valuing you and following you and forsaking all for you. That's not what they're saying. What they're saying is, Lord, Lord, we spent our life treasuring religious things over you. Lord, Lord, I went to church every week. Lord, Lord, I gave in the offering plate. Lord, Lord, I sent money to missionaries. Not understanding that that stuff is an overflow of something very critical that had to have taken place first. There is a surrender that requires you to walk through the narrow gate and respond to the, the call of Jesus. You must be born again to even see the kingdom of God. 
before that stuff that starts happening is an overflow of your heart. Because if you skip the first step, if you're not spiritually bankrupt, if you're not coming to Jesus saying, I'm here to forsake everything, then it's just so easy to go through the, narrow, the, the wide gate and show up and just say, well, I'm here, aren't I? I showed up every week, I did all the stuff. The stuff doesn't matter. There's only one thing that matters, and it's treasuring him and forsaking all. And none of these people stood before. I don't want you sitting here thinking like, oh man, you mean to tell me like I could, I could spend my whole life being deceived? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm telling you. So how do you not spend your whole life being deceived? You start examining the fruit of the folks who you are allowing to speak into your life. And you see if it weighs up to the word of God. And you do the work of first examining above anything else. Like when you're standing, when you're in your prayer time, when right now when you're trying to work through this stuff, okay, well like, I need to start worrying about my salvation. You got one question to ask. What is your, what is your response to Jesus? What do you think about him? Is he just like a good guy, a good teacher? Or is he the one who took your punishment for sin and without him you are headed to hell? Because there is coming a punishment. That's the promise in this. All of us is coming our way without Jesus taking the punishment for us is coming in eternal punishment. So you can do one of two things. You can say, Jesus, I can't bear that punishment. I'm a broken man, you're calling my name, I'm responding to you. I accept that you took my punishment for me. I'm, I, I wanna be adopted into your kingdom. I'm yours. Or you can say, I think I'll take my chances. I think that I can do enough good religious things here on earth that eventually when I stand before the Lord, he will take those things into consideration and all of my good stuff will cancel out my bad stuff. I got bad news for you. You don't have enough lifetimes to cancel out the bad stuff that you did just in this service with your thought life. So, we're gonna finish on 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. I'll read that again, it's important. Everyone who hears these words and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. What a way to finish this sermon, right? All right, everybody. I'm sure you've had a good time. Thanks for coming out. It's been a beautiful day. Said a lot of wild stuff. Hope you took notes. 
enjoyed you heard enjoyed that you were here and you heard what I had to say, but uh, that's not enough. You got to leave here and go do what I said. It's not enough that you heard what I said. You have to go do what I said, because everyone who hears and does is like a guy who builds a house on a strong foundation. But if you just came and you heard and you come every Sunday and you hear, but you never go and do, you're building a house on a weak foundation. And here's the kicker. Both houses are promised storms. A lot of times we think that when you come to Jesus, that means the storms are over. He's just gonna speak to the storms and they're gonna end. Well, good news, sometimes he does. Sometimes in his wisdom and his providence, he just says, enough's enough, and the storm's over. But a lot of times, the storm doesn't end as bad as you want it to. You can pray all day long, please, in this storm. It's not going anywhere. You're going to have to weather it. Why do we have to weather storms? Because the storms are the only way for you to truly get an assessment of what your foundation is built on. Because you can convince yourself that your foundation is fine until a storm shows up. So what does that mean for us? That means we should stop cursing the storms coming our way and start praising God for the way they test our foundation. So praise God for this pandemic. And some of you didn't like that, that's okay. But until this showed up, Many of us have been lying to us for years about how strong our foundation was. And now all of a sudden we're making stuff, theology that ain't got nothing to do with theology. Praise God for the election that happened last year. Boo, I don't like that one, no. Can we go back like three minutes on the tape and ignore it? These storms aren't actual storms from, from like, like rain. No, these are storms in our life. Praise God for turmoil and storms because without them, you would keep on thinking that your foundation is stronger than it actually is. But now that it's here, praise God because you can take an assessment of the things you've been listening to but not doing. You don't know what you're not doing until the storm hits. And this is the way he ends, and I love this. At verse 29, he says this. He was teaching as one who had authority. Not like the scribes. Not like the folks who had no idea what they were talking about. Not like the religious people. He was teaching as one who had authority. Well, the question is authority to do what? He was teaching as one who had the authority to tell them that they were wrong, that their foundations were weak, that they needed to be saved and redeemed. He was teaching as one who had authority to demand obedience to what he taught. And so as we close today, this is the question I have for you. The crowds recognize the obedience that Jesus has. Do you? Does Jesus have this kind of authority in your life that when you hear his words, you say, not my will, but yours be done?
Because the temptation before you leave this place is to hear these words and say, I'm good with like 80% of that. But I do take issue with a few things. Look, you can take issue with a few things that I say specifically, but I can't help you if you're taking issues with the things that Jesus says. And if you're going to take the things that Jesus said and manipulate them and spin them around and turn them upside down to fit your own agenda, I also cannot help you. Because what is required of us is for you to stop spinning and manipulating, for you to stop working and, uh, uh, and trying to um, uh, position stuff so that you switch it around and it sounds better in your favor. What is required of you is to get your hands off of it, to listen to what he has to say, to stop arguing with it and stop making your case that you are the exception to the rule to turn and obey. So as we close, that's the question I have for us. Do we, after listening to his words, declare you have authority in my life to align me to what I just read? Or am I truly going to stand here and say, we need to talk about some things because I don't like that. God, don't make us the kind of people who stand here and try to argue with you about what we can get away with. Amen? All right, let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.